Number 925 will be the song after the lesson. We are talking about the book of Revelation today, but before we get to that, I want to tell you something that happened during the life of Jesus. Jesus, uh, no doubt the apostles, John and Peter and James and all the other apostles, they'd seen some amazing things. They'd seen Jesus speak and the waters just got calm from a storm. They'd seen Jesus heal people of every kind of disease. They'd seen him cast out demons. There's a story in Matthew 17 about Jesus going up on a mountain, and he goes up on this mountain and he takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they go up on the, the mountain, and we read that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And in this situation, in this story, when this happens, Peter, James, and John notice there's Moses and Elijah, and they are there with Jesus talking to him. And they're just overwhelmed with this story, this, this setting that they're in, this amazing, majestic, glory-filled setting. And Peter says, Lord, this is so good to be here. Let's, let's make three churches, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And this bright cloud shadows over them and God speaks and he says, this is my beloved son. You hear him. And the Bible says that Peter, James, and John were terrified. Can you imagine what that was like? I think about when I read those stories, I try to put myself in them and I try to imagine being there and what that would be like to see Jesus Christ transfigured and changed. You know the rest of the story. You know that Jesus was crucified. You know that he was raised from the dead. You know that he spent 40 days with his disciples teaching them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. And you know that he was ascending up into heaven outside of Jerusalem and he told them, you're going to Jerusalem and you wait because you're going to be my witnesses. Not just here, but you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and then throughout the whole world. And that's what they began to do. The book of Acts, the letters that are written in the New Testament, they're about that. And all these, these congregations, these families of believers, of followers in this man Jesus, they were persecuted by the Jews. The Jews felt like Jesus was a false Christ. A lot of them did. They hated Jesus and Christianity and they persecuted the Jews so they spread. You know the Apostle Paul was a big persecutor and his persecution caused the church to spread all over. But early on, the persecution against the church was primarily the Jews. The Romans, in the Roman Empire, you could worship any god you wanted as long as you worshipped Caesar too. Not long people started to figure out these Christians, they won't worship Caesar too. They'll only worship God. In fact, they considered early Christians atheists. 
because they only believed in one God and they didn't believe in all the other gods. And they began to persecute Christians, Rome did, and all of the apostles at this point had been put to death except one, and there's just one that's left. He's John. And he is sent to this island, this island of Patmos. It's out in the in the Aegean Sea out here in between Greece and Turkey. There's this little island. It's about 10 miles long and about 6 miles wide at its widest. It's just a rocky, barren place. And one of the things that they did during the Roman Empire sometimes is they exiled people. They would send them somewhere like this just to get rid of them. And they exiled John to this island called Patmos. And that's where he was when he received this revelation. Now, when, when you read the book of Revelation, and I want to point out it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I grew up calling it revelations. Okay, There's no plural. There's not a bunch of revelations. It's just one revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when you look at that, in the beginning it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to talk about a couple of things here. Number one, it is the revealing. That's what revelation means it's the revealing. Now most people kind of have the idea that the book of Revelation is some deep mysterious secret that nobody can figure out. That's why there's all these different ideas and all these different concepts about it. But the purpose of this, I've, I've read a lot of different commentaries. You all know my dad's written a commentary on this and he's done a lot of teaching on it. One of the things that is really important for us to learn is this is not the concealing of Jesus Christ. It is the revealing of Jesus. God wants and expects you and I to understand this. Now notice it's the revealing of Jesus Christ. Now that could mean two things. It could mean that it is a revelation that comes from Jesus Christ or it could mean it's a revelation about Jesus Christ, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus. And I'll tell you that I believe this book is both. It is both from Jesus Christ and it is about Jesus Christ. This is a book, it contains this vision, this apocalyptic revelation revealing from Jesus about Jesus Christ himself, what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. It says, God gave him this to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, that's interesting. You're going to find that said repeatedly here early on in the book, that this is stuff that must shortly take place. It is important for you and I to understand that this book was about things that mattered to the people who were going to read it. Okay, This was not a book about things that are going to happen millennia in the future. 
But this is a book about things that must shortly come to pass. These are things that are going to occur in the near term. Now, this shouldn't surprise any of us. In Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus talked about the coming of the Son of Man and, and one being taken and another left and all those things he talks about in Matthew 24, you know what Jesus told those people listening to him? He said, this generation won't pass till these things happen. So that shouldn't be surprising to us that these were things that were going to happen in the lifetime of the people who were listening or reading this. It says he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. He sent and signified it. Now, that word signified is a word that means to make to make known or to make shown, to, to indicate something, to make clear something. But it's a word that means to make it clear by signs. You can't do this with all Greek words when they're translated into English, but this one you can. It's signified. Signified means he took something and made it into signs or symbols. And he used those symbols to indicate or to make something known. Now, all the symbols and all the signs in Revelation mean something. And it's kind of like um, oh, if you go to an auction. Have you ever been to an auction? Okay, and you'll have a number with, on, a si on a little po uh, wooden post, something, or you'll just raise your hand. When you want to bid, you make a sign, and you, you raise your hand, or you hold up your number. You know why you do that? You're indicating, you're making something known with a sign. Or like a drug dog, or an explosive dog, they teach it that when you find something, if it's a drug dog, it paws at the thing that it finds. If it's an explosive dog, they don't paw at it. They teach them to sit. That's a sign that I've found something. And so all of these things that we're going to read in the book of Revelation are signs. Now, it's really important for you and I to know the book of Revelation is the 66th book in the Bible. If you have read and have a good grasp of and understand and are familiar with the stuff in the other 65 books... One thing you're going to notice when you get to Revelation is all these signs and symbols, they're all repeats. None of them are original. They're all repeats from other places in these 65 books. And so if you read and understood and had a concept of what was going on in these previous books, then the book of Revelation, you go, oh, I've seen that sign before. I know what that sign means. And it will make sense to you. Okay? It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear and hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Now, there's a couple of things to notice out of this. Number one, it says, Blessed. Did you know this is the only book in the Bible that contains a specific blessing? for the people who read some. He says, well, I get blessed when I read any of the Bible. That's true. There's blessings in all of the Bible. But this one specifically states a blessing. Here's a blessing for you if you read, you hear, and you keep. Those three things, read, hear, and keep. Now notice, notice the tense of these words. It says, bless, there's a bless this he who reads and those who hear. You see, this, the idea behind this here 
is an assembly. You've got one man reading and everyone else hearing, and then everyone goes and keeps. And that, that, that should make perfect sense to you and I because as you look at this, here sits John down here in the island of Patmos, and he's going to write this letter to these churches that are in green right here, okay? And they're on this major road that leads through this area. And, you know, when you got the Bible back in these days, they didn't bring a whole crate of Bibles and everybody get their own. They sent a letter, and some guy would get up in front of the congregation and read this letter. And that's what this book of Revelation is. It's a letter that John wrote of what God, through Jesus Christ, revealed to him and so he says, when this comes to your congregation, when the man gets up in front of the church and reads this to you, you need to hear it and you need to keep it. And if you do, there's going to be a blessing for you. And I say, well, what is that blessing? I'm going to tell you, if you understand the message of the book of Revelation, and every book I've ever seen gets the overall message. And that message is this. When the smoke clears, God wins. Bottom line. No matter what happens between now and then, no matter how much persecution you face, no matter how many people you know are killed, when the smoke clears, God and his people win and Satan loses. Now I want you to know if you really get that, I mean you really understand that, it doesn't bother you to watch Fox News. <laughs> because you know why at the end? You know, well, we win. <laughs> it doesn't matter what laws they pass right now. We win. You know that. And there is a blessing. There is a comfort. There is a satisfaction and a joy in knowing and understanding that no matter what happens to me in this life, no matter what temptation that I'm struggling and fighting against to try to make myself more like Jesus Christ and I'm battling that. Do you do that? I battle against things. Do you? I told my wife just this morning on the way to church, I said, you know, I'm going to be easier to get along with. <laughs> You know why I say that? Because sometimes I'm not easy to get along with, and I battle that. But you know when you're battling? If you know the message of this book, you know we win. You know in the end, we win. We don't lose. No matter how hard the struggle is, we win because we're on the side of God, and God's already won this battle. And then he says, for the time is near. In the... <laughs> Let me show you, this book, as we've pointed out, was written to these churches in these cities. As far as we know, none of those churches still exist today. Why write a letter to a group of churches that aren't even going to exist about something that's going to happen thousands of years after they're dead? What urgency is there in that? But he says here, the time is near. In fact, if we got on to chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, you're going to see in chapter 4 that John, they've got this scroll that can't be opened, and John is there, and there's no one that can open this scroll to tell what's, what Revelation 4 through 22 says. And John sees this, and they can't open it, so John weeps bitterly. Because the scroll can't be opened and then the lamb comes and he's able to open the scroll. Are you going to weep bitterly about something that's going to happen thousands of years after you're dead? 
No, the time is near. The time is at hand. Now, I believe the message is applicable through all generations, but the things that were going on, you know, John has been sent here most likely by Nero. If you've done any history study of the, the Roman world, you'll know Nero was a bad dude. I mean, he was terrible. He hated Christians. That's where persecution of Christians by Rome began, was with Nero. He would take Christians and he would tie them up and hang them on poles and set them on fire so there would be lights in his garden. He did horrific things. And I want you to know, you and I, we look at the news and we go, oh, things are bad, we may be persecuted, they may take away our favorable tax status, and all these things that, that we worry about here in America. That's nothing compared to what these... Can you imagine being at home and knowing that the government any day could kick in your door and arrest your spouse and drag them off and throw them to wild animals for entertainment. That's what was going on. I'll tell you what, when people are going to face things like that, they need help. They need hope. They need encouragement. And that's what Jesus is telling John. This stuff is near. So he says, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. You know who that is? That's God the Father. I think Yancey's version even pointed that out more specifically. That's God the Father. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. And the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now when some of us got together and talked about this, one of them said, I hope you explain these seven spirits. What are these seven spirits? Well, let's look at this just very briefly. These seven spirits, if you go back 600 years before Jesus, you read these words in Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now notice this. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Who's he talking about first? Who's the branch from Jesse? Well, that's Jesus Christ. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. You see, we've got seven spirits right there. The Holy Spirit that rested on Jesus Christ. So you've got the Father, you've got the Holy Spirit, and you've got the Son. We call that the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ, they're all here in the center of this book, bringing blessing and grace to us and peace. Okay? Jesus Christ, he talks about him a little bit here, and he gives us some things about Jesus. We get three things of what he was and three things of what he did. The three things that he was. Jesus Christ was the faithful witness. Jesus said himself when he was walking on this earth, he said, I speak only the things my Father tells me to speak. And you know what? Jesus was faithful in his witness. He told Nicodemus, and he told Zacchaeus, and he told the high priest when they said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And he said, Yes, I am. And he told Pilate, when Pilate said, Are you a king? And he said, For this reason I was born, but my kingdom's not of this earth. Jesus Christ told his disciples. He told the crowds that followed him. He told the lepers. Jesus was the faithful witness. 
He was faithful in his witness. He never failed at all in any circumstance. And his witness was always true, and his witness was always the same. He was the firstborn from the dead. Do you ever think about the resurrection? Jesus said one time, someday people are going to hear my voice and they're going to come out of the graves. You ever think about what that's going to be like? You know, the dead that are in the sea will come up out of the sea. The dead that have been cremated will just be re-put together. The dead who are buried will come up out of those graves. I think about that. What, what would that be like? That would just be... Who do you think is going to come up first? You think there'd be a rush, a race to people? I was first! No, you weren't. You know who was first? Jesus Christ was first. He's the firstborn from the dead, raised to never die again. He was dead, but now he's alive forevermore. Jesus was first. He's the firstborn from the dead, the first one to never die. And that's why he says a little bit later, I hold the keys to death and of Hades. He says, I hold the keys to to the afterworld. You know, interestingly, when you read through the Bible, they talk about people who are dead as being asleep, right? You know, uh, Paul talks about that in Thessalonians where he talks about the second coming of Christ. He says, don't, don't be afraid about those who are asleep. In other words, those who've already died. You know why he does that, I believe? Because to God, they're just asleep. To Jesus, he can wake them up just like you could wake me up if I dozed off in my chair. He can wake them up just like we can wake up anyone. Because they're just asleep to him. And he's going to raise us. He's going to wake us all someday. And a ruler over the kings of this earth. He is a king. Early Christianity was uh, persecuted, not purchased. They were purchased by Jesus. They were persecuted by the Romans. The Romans persecuted them in large part because they taught that Jesus was a king and they believed Jesus was a king. There was no room in Rome for any king that claimed to be equal to or above the king Caesar. But Jesus is a king over all the kings of the earth. He's a king over ruler over everyone that exists because his kingdom isn't a political kingdom. It's not a spot on the earth. It's not the territory that we call Israel in the Middle East because he is king over the hearts of men. That's why Jesus Christ said, my kingdom is within you. And Jesus today reigns as king. He's my king. Is he yours? Is he your king? Absolutely. And he's my king too. These are three things that he did. Here's three things that or three things that he was or is. Here's three things that he did. He loved us. Jesus Christ loved us. You know what it's like to be loved? I hope you do. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that he loved us. Romans chapter 8 talks about this and he says, there's neither height nor depth nor angels nor powers nor principalities nor famine nor nakedness nor peril. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing you've done. Talking to one of the parents of one of my students here uh, recently and she was asking about Paul You know, Paul murdered people just because they were Christians. Now, I've done some bad stuff, but I've never killed anyone just because they were Christian. 
God saved him. And Paul said that Christ loved him and Christ saved him to prove he'll save anyone. You see, the love of God and the love of Christ is so overwhelming that there's, there's not any good way for us to describe it even. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. Matthew chapter 10 tells us not to fear those who can destroy this body, but fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, and Jesus took care of that for you. Jesus took care of that for you. So you don't have to be afraid. He made us kings and priests, or as many translations say, He made us a kingdom and priests. You know what a priest does? Priest offers sacrifice. Sacrifice of praise, sacrifice of whatever, whatever it is. A priest is one who offers sacrifice. And you know what? You and I in Scripture, many times He talks about the things we offer. We offer the fruit of our lips as praise to God. In fact, if you notice, that's what he does in the very next rest of this sentence even. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He offers some fruit of praise right there. And we as Christians are priests standing to offer sacrifices. And then he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. I don't know what it's going to be like when he comes. But he's coming with the clouds. Now, if you're not familiar with this, I don't know your translation. You can look in it. Some of them indicate that this is a quote. If you have one with a centerline reference or something, you can probably find. This is a quote, actually, out of the book of Daniel that was given 700 years before this. And in the book of Daniel, here's what we read. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now that's what Daniel said 700 years before. And John is calling on that. John is being reminded of that. And John is telling that this, this coming of Jesus is going to be like that coming he talked about. Now we know from Scripture that what Daniel was talking about here was the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We know that, and we know that for several reasons. One, Jesus said while he was here, he said, I'm binding the strong men, and answered Isaiah. When Isaiah can, said, can the strong men be bound? The strong men was Satan, and Jesus said when he was casting out demons, he said, I'm binding the strong men. And right before he died, Jesus said, the prince of this world has been judged. That's Satan. He'd been judged. And you know what? When Jesus died on the cross, it says in Colossians 2 that... On the cross, he defeated, he made an open show over publicly defeating principalities and powers and wickedness and spiritual darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places. All these things Jesus Christ defeated at the cross. That's why in Hebrews chapter 2, he says that through death, he defeated him that had the power over death, that is the devil. Jesus defeated Satan with his own death even though that was the power that Satan had. And so Jesus, after his resurrection in Matthew chapter 28, says to his disciples, he says, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Go therefore into all nations, 
all nations and preach the gospel to every creature. We know this happened at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In fact, in your Bible, every verse that talks about the kingdom of God before the first gospel sermon was preached in Acts 2, every one of them talks about it as being future. It's coming. It's at hand. It's near. It's going to come. Beginning in Acts 2, when the first gospel sermon was preached and people became a part of the kingdom of God, every place it says it's here, you're in it, you've been translated into it, you've been put into the kingdom because Jesus Christ is king and his kingdom exists today. So we know that's what Daniel was talking about. But this isn't the only place this imagery is used. Jesus himself said when he was being tried by the high priest, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Behold, he comes with the clouds. And Jesus said, you're going to see that. In fact, after his resurrection, Jesus goes outside Jerusalem with his disciples. And he's talking to them. He tells them, I want you to go back in Jerusalem and wait. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible tells us when he had said these things as they were looking on him, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And they're standing here looking. And some men in white robes, angels, come up to them and they say, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The same way he was taken up into clouds and he's going to come back in clouds. Now I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but we know that Jesus Christ himself was taken up into clouds in the clouds and he will return and this coming is going to be different it's not just going to be some shepherds in a field it's not just going to be some wise men from the east but he says this time when he comes every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn he says, every eye is going to see him. When Jesus comes back again, everyone, even dead people, the ones who pierced him, those soldiers, that one who took the sword and, or the spear and drove it into the side of Jesus, he's going to see Jesus come again. You and I will see Jesus come when he comes this way. Every eye will see it. Even so, amen. The word amen means so be it. John's telling this. He says when he comes, everyone's going to see him even so. Amen. That's exactly what we're looking for. And so he says, I, John, both your brother in, and companion in three things, the tribulation, whoops, the tribulation, the kingdom, and the endurance of Jesus Christ. Tribulation. Jesus said the world hated me, it's going to hate you. You know, this is a mark in the New Testament of Christians that they suffer persecution. Christians suffer. Do you suffer at all? All Christians suffer. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, is what John told, told Timothy. You know, you're going to suffer. In, in America, our suffering has not been physical suffering. It's been ostracism and ridicule and disagreement and defiance. Sometimes, though, it's pain and death. And he said Christians are going to suffer. 
That's a mark of Christianity to be like their Christ. In fact, in the New Testament, when they suffered, when they were beaten for the name of Christ, you know what they did? They left rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer like Jesus. Now, that's not our normal attitude, is it? Our normal attitude is, oh Lord, please, no persecution. Just don't, don't, don't let them persecute us, Lord. John said, I'm your brother and I'm your companion in persecution and in the kingdom. Notice the kingdom exists. This is not a revelation of some kingdom that's going to come someday. We're already in the kingdom with John and the endurance of Jesus Christ. That's going to play a real important role in the rest of this that we're going to study uh, through these next few weeks. The endurance. Over and over he's going to say, blessed is he who endures. You've got to hang in there. You've got to never quit. The endurance of Jesus Christ. Patient endurance. When you go through stuff, when they're kicking in the doors and arresting people and feeding them to wild animals, they're boiling them in oil or burning them at the stake, you endure. You don't ever, ever quit. So here's John. He's heard behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet. So John is here on this island, and you, if you go, you can travel to Patmos right now. The island's still there, and you can get a tour to the cave that they think that Jesus or that John was in when he got this revelation. I don't know if he was in a cave or not. If I was on a barren island, I'd probably hide in a cave. They'd probably be a good place to stay, but I don't know. But he's in this cave or wherever he is on this island, and he hears the sound of a trumpet. Now, there probably weren't a lot of trumpets on a barren island in the middle of the sea. And he hears this trumpet, and then he hears this voice, this loud voice behind him. What's this voice say? It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek Alphabet, omega is the last letter. What Jesus is saying here is, I'm, I'm, the, I'm all of it. I'm the very beginning and I'm the end. I'm everything. And Jesus Christ is everything. And he's going to be shown to be everything throughout the rest of this revelation. He says, what you see, I want you to write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now these seven churches, they appear in this vision as these candlesticks. Now I don't know exactly what the candlesticks look like, but there was light. You see, they're golden candlesticks that he sees. They're golden because they're divine. They're from Jesus Christ himself. They're his people. And they're candlesticks because they're shedding light. They're putting out light. They're shining light in the darkness as scripture talks about. We shine light into the darkness. You know, we look at the news and we talk about how things are changing right now, don't we? You know what? The darker it is, the brighter your light looks. Doesn't need much light when it's really dark. And the darker it gets around us in this world, the brighter your light is going to shine. The more they're going to notice. The more they're going to see. And he sees standing in the midst of these golden lampstands one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. So he sees these lampstands, 
These golden lampstands, and right in the middle is standing one, like the Son of Man. Does that sound like Daniel? Daniel's description sure does. And he's wearing this garment, and a Jew would have immediately recognized that. That's the garment of the high priest. It's white, and it has a gold band around it. This is what the high priest wears. And Jesus Christ is the high priest. The high priest was the one who entered God's presence for you and I to offer sacrifice. And Jesus Christ is appearing here in the midst of all these churches as the one who will enter the presence of God to make a sacrifice for you and I. And then I want you to notice his description. He says that his head and his hair were white as snow. White hair all through Scripture. In the old King James it said hoary head, which means white head. White hair. That's always recognized as wisdom. All through Scripture. Wisdom. So here stands Christ in this high priestly robe, and his hair is so white. He is so wise, it's just like snow. I mean, it, have you ever gone outside when it was bright and snowy, and it was just so bright you couldn't hardly open your eyes? That's how his hair was. Because his wisdom is so perfect and so complete, he makes no mistakes in his guidance. So here he stands in the midst of the lamps. Not only that... But his eyes are like fire, like a flame of fire. You know, Judas, you remember Judas? Judas could lie to Peter. Judas could lie to John and the other apostles, but Judas couldn't lie to Jesus. Jesus could look right into his heart, and that's why Jesus, there at the Last Supper, could say, one of you here is a demon. You know why? Because you can't hide from the eyes of Jesus. You cannot hide from the eyes of Jesus Christ. He could always see the hearts of those that followed him and those that challenged him. Many times there would be people in the crowd who were challenging him and the Bible would say, and Jesus, knowing what was in their hearts, said, you know why? Because Jesus can see your heart. Jesus can see the difference in the thoughts and the intents of your heart, which sometimes I don't even know the difference in my thoughts and intents. But Jesus does. He can see that, and He does today. That's why Scripture says nothing is hidden from His sight. There's nowhere to hide. So here you've got this figure, and He's in this high priestly robe, and He's filled with wisdom with His white hair, and He has these eyes that He can see and judge everything. And he has feet that were of fine brass as refined in a furnace. Now to a Jew, this would immediately bring up the image of the altar of burnt offering, which was fine brass. And it was a brass that held a fire that went on for hundreds of years without ever being put out. This altar of burnt offering is where sacrifice was made for sin, where atonement happened, where vengeance, where death happened as payment for sin. And so here you find this figure with these wise, this great wisdom on his head and his eyes that can see everything and his feet that are refined and he will, as the Bible talks about, press out or tread out the grapes of God's wrath with these feet. These feet. This is why the Bible says that God will put all things under his feet because these are feet of judgment. 
These are feet that are coming to bring judgment. And he says then that his voice was as the sound of many waters. On my bucket list is to go to Niagara Falls. I've never been there, but I understand from people who have been there that the sound is just overwhelming. The sound of many waters. This is not a Father forgive them from the cross. This is now a roar of judgment. And the book of Revelation is coming with Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, the slain Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, and He is coming to roar in judgment for His people. His people will endure, and His people will be avenged, and the evil will finally and ultimately be defeated and put away. And so here stands this figure, and He's got in His right hand stars. Can you imagine holding a star in your hand? He's got seven stars in his right hand. And then John sees his mouth, and coming out of his mouth is this sword. And that word that's used for sword, there's not like a little dagger. This is a cleaver. This thing is four foot long, and it's sharp on both sides, and it's what you use to separate asunder something. And it's coming out of his mouth. The Word of God, as you're familiar with Scripture, it's always spoken of as a sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit and thoughts and intents and bone and marrow. The Word of God is coming out of His mouth and the Word of God will bring judgment and justice. Jesus said, the words that I speak, they're going to judge you in the last day. You will be judged by this judge with these words. John sums it up by saying, you know what? His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. All through Scripture we find that no one can look on God and live. Over and over that's told to us in Scripture. No one can look at God and live. No one can see Him and live. It's unfathomable light, unfathomable brightness. Can you picture this scene? Can you imagine what this was like? And I looked on the internet. I'm going to tell you something. They don't have pictures of this on the internet. Nobody knows. Nobody can describe. Nobody can put into a picture what John was seeing here. But it's put in description back in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10 says his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sounds of his words like the sound of a multitude. This isn't new. Now you're John and you hear this voice like the sound of many waters and you turn and you see and you see the, the lampstands and the stars and the figure as he stands there. What do you say? What do you say to Jesus? Now John, if Jesus had a best friend, it was John. At the Last Supper, the Bible says John leaned on his breast. He leaned right up against Jesus. He was always... The Bible calls him the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was close with Jesus. 
He sees him. After, it's been 60 years since he saw Jesus Christ die on that cross and ascend up into heaven. What's he say? Hey, hey, hey Son of God, you're looking good. <laughs> what do you say? What's your response? You know what he did? He says, I fell at his feet as dead. He passed dead cold out. Just fell down like a dead man. He's gone. Why? Well, because of what he was seeing. It was amazing. You know, I saw on television a few years ago, there was a uh, church that this guy was up preaching and he was talking about the rapture. And he said, you know, we're all going to be raptured away. He said, let's practice. And he's had everybody go, woo woo I want you to know that's a mockery. There's nobody going to be standing around on this day going, woo this is going to be the most awesome, incredible day in the history of the existence of this world. And you know what? Jesus, in this moment, reaches out, puts his hand on John, and he says, Do not be afraid. And he wakes him up. Don't be afraid. You ever been really, really scared? I mean, scared down in the core? Has that ever happened to you? I mean, I've been startled. I remember one time when I first moved to Dallas, I lived in an apartment, and lightning struck either the building I was in or right outside because it knocked me off of my feet. I was, I was walking across the living room floor there, and it knocked me off my feet. And I want you to know... <laughs> there was some trembling going on down inside. I mean, it, I was nothing like this. And it was over in a hurry. Jesus reaches down and He touches him and He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? He tells him, He says, here's the vision of Christ. He says, I want you to write the things which you've seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. He says, wake up, John. Don't be afraid. I've got a job for you. And that job is this. I want you to do three things, or write about three things. Number one, I want you to write what you've seen. And he's already done that. That's what he's writing here in Revelation chapter 1. It's this vision of the glorified Christ. This avenging God. This avenging Jesus Christ who will take care of all of the wrongs. He will right every wrong and He's going to bring justice and He's going to end wickedness. Number two, I want you to write the things which are. And that's the condition of the churches. Those are the things which are these churches. Here's the condition of these churches. And then he says, I want you to write the things which shall be. The things that are going to take place after this. That's the coming persecution and ultimate triumph when God avenges his children. He says, I want you to write about these things. And John does. And then he says this, the mystery. This mystery of the seven stars 
which you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands. So remember when John first turns around and he hears Jesus and he sees him standing in the midst here and he's got the lampstands around him and he's got these stars in his hand. That's the first symbols we've got. What do those things mean? He says, I'm going to explain that to you, this mystery, just to get started. Okay, number one, the seven stars. He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Really? That's interesting. Now, you know the word angel means messenger, right? That's what the word means. And I'll tell you that I'm not 100% sure what kind of messengers this are. Are these angelic beings? Maybe. Or are these the messenger of the church? The one who would stand up and read this in front of the congregation? Because you remember he just said, blessed is he who reads and they who hear and understand. I'm not sure which one this is. What this is telling me though is whoever it is, Jesus has the power in his hand. You remember that old song, he's got the whole world in his hands? I don't know if you're very old, you may remember that. You remember that, Christy? He's got the whole world in his hand. Not saying you're old, but he's got the whole world in his hand. Jesus has got these angels of these churches in his hand. Okay, so what are the lampstands? He says the lampstands are the seven churches. So when he turned around, he saw Jesus standing in the midst of this, and Jesus says, I want you to write a letter to seven churches. He says, these, these lampstands standing around me, these are those churches that I want you to write a letter to. And that's the way chapter 1 ends, and we begin in chapter 2 with those letters. Now, as I understand it, this was a circular letter. This was a letter that John wrote, and he was going to go first to Ephesus, and then he was going to go to Smyrna and he was going to make his way around those churches. And what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks is we're going to read these letters that Jesus Christ wrote to a church. Can you imagine? We were talking about this the other night. If Jesus was here today, would he be an honored guest? <laughs> you better he would be an honored guest and I have no doubt as soon as he walked in our elders would be going you got the floor Lord whatever you want to say you just speak to us right well he does he speaks to these churches and I want you to know that the things that he says are not necessarily always what these churches wanted to hear you know you've got Jesus in the midst of the first church Ephesus he says, you lost your first love. He says, you got lots of good going on. There's a bunch of good in this church except for one thing. You lost your first love. You don't really love me anymore. You're just doing all your stuff. You got all your programs going. You got your outreach going. You don't love me. He says, you better repent. He goes on to Smyrna. Smyrna was a place where the Christians were very, very poor. You know, I go to Nigeria, and over there the Christians are very, very poor. But they were poor physically, yet rich in the Spirit. They're the opposite of Laodicea. They are very physically poor in the things of this world, but they are very wealthy and strong in Christianity. But you know, they suffer persecution. They're in a place where there's a lot of persecution. Did you know that there are Christians who live in places in the world today that are persecuted? There are, there are Christians who die every day for Jesus Christ. 
in this world. People that take it on the chin for him every day. Our hardships don't begin to approach that. Then he talks to the church at Pergamum. This church was compromising. They were a lot like America in a lot of ways. And nowadays a lot of people say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, but they don't believe anything. They don't care what you believe. They don't care what you teach. It doesn't matter what the church teaches when they move somewhere. They just find a church they like. That's the way this church was. They were compromising. They didn't stand with the truth of God's Word and say, no, this is what God says and this is true. But they allowed all kinds of other things. When our girls were young, played volleyball. There's a church in Dallas that they played, they practiced in their gym. That church, you can go to and anyone can preach on Sunday evenings at that church. They let anyone come preach. It doesn't matter what you say. Is that a good idea? We'll find out. Thyatira. Thyatira was a corrupt church. They were immoral. They allowed that woman Jezebel to entice their members to commit fornication and to do all kinds of immoral things. They were a corrupt church. And Jesus had some things to say to that church. Then there was a church at Sardis. And he said, Sardis, you've got a great reputation. But you're dead. You want to be a part of a dead church? You know there are dead churches? There are. And he said, even in this dead church, there are few that walk in white. But the church as a whole was dead. Then he comes to Philadelphia, and he said, you know what, you're a faithful church. Philadelphia was faithful. They hung in there. They were doing what God wanted them to do. They were growing spiritually. They were loving Him and serving Him. And he said, you know what? You're going to be persecuted. You better hold on. Just hold on. And then he finishes with Laodicea, probably the most famous of all these churches because they were the lukewarm church. I was thinking about this. When Jesus comes, if He stood up in front of us and said, you make me sick. Wouldn't that be horrible? That's what He told these people. He said, you make me want to vomit. He said, I, you, you say you're lifted up. You say you're some great thing. You, the truth is you're blind and naked and destitute. He said, you got nothing and you think you got everything. What a group of churches. Now some people say these churches represent the different ages of the church through history. The problem with that is that these churches were that way then. All of them were that way then. You know what? Today, there are churches just like every one of these. There are today. There have always been churches like this. These weren't just a period of time when the church was faithful and a period of the time when it wasn't. But individual churches, which are what? It's individual Christians, individual members. And so as we go through these next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to do this. Where's the church at Denton? Where's this congregation in that circle? And more importantly, where are you? Where do you stand with Jesus? When He comes and looks at you as a part of His church, do you compromise? Are you immoral? Are you faithful? Have you lost your first love? Are you lukewarm? Where are you? I'm looking forward to this series of lessons. I hope you've been encouraged. Now, I want to tell you, we are not, in this series, going to pick up Revelation 4-22. through 22. 
Okay, that's not a part of this. What we're doing is Revelation 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to talk about these letters. Not that the rest of Revelation isn't important. We've had it taught on here in the past, and it will be taught on in the future if the world continues to go. But right now, our focus is going to be on examining what Jesus said to these churches and how that applies to us in our lives and how we can do the things he told us to do to repent if we need to repent, how we can be right with him or how we can hang on. I think this is very appropriate to us. You know, we're coming out of a, a time of COVID where thing, everything's different, right? Everything's been different. Even, you know, all these people are getting the shot. And I don't know if you've gotten the shot or not, but I saw this week the CDC is now going to release things that people who've had the shot are allowed to do and not allowed to do. Things that are good and bad, recommendations. This isn't going away, and the church is different. We look around, and there's a lot of people who were here before who aren't here now. We live in a world of a cultural church. People who are culturally Christians but aren't committed to Christ. We need to take stock of ourselves. We need to take stock of our congregation and of us individually. And so for the next few weeks, that's going to be our focus. I hope you've been encouraged. I hope you've been fascinated by some of this. I hope you've been intrigued to begin looking back at some of the other 65 books to see some of these symbols so when you read the last one, you'll understand those symbols. I hope mostly you've been edified and built up in Jesus Christ today. If you have a spiritual need, though, we do offer that an opportunity for you to bring that before the church and we'll pray with you or for you. If there's anything you have need, let us know while we stand and sing.